Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Judge Robert Bacharach of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. Judge Bacharach has written a new book that has come out called Legal Writing, A Judge's Perspective on the Science and Rhetoric of the Written Word. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Lee. I'm delighted to be here. Now, uh, I don't think that circuit court judges are known for their copious amounts of free time. Why was it so important to you to take some of your free time and write this book? Honestly, Lee, my principal motivation was really to try to improve my own skill as a legal writer. As like most federal judges, our job really consists of writing, editing, and then writing and editing a lot more. The way we communicate our rulings is really the essence of any federal judge's job. And so my quest really was to try to improve the ability that I communicate to the parties so that they can understand my decisions, the reasons for my decisions, whether they agree with them or not. I think it's so important for the parties to be able to understand a judge's rulings. And so that was principally my motivation. And there have been many legal writing books. What I love about yours is that you went to the field of psycholinguistics. Can you talk a little bit about what psycholinguistics are and how they helped you form these principles behind what makes really solid legal writing? One of the things that I learned in the course of doing my research for this book is that there is a discipline of psychology as you pointed out, called psycholinguistics, that for the better part of a century has devoted itself to studying how the brain processes language. There are so many extraordinary legal writing books, but one of the things that virtually all of them have in common is an intuitive appreciation uh, for certain uh, facets of legal writing. To take a couple of mundane examples, uh, keeping the space between a subject and verb relatively modest, or keeping the space between a verb and indirect object fairly uh, limited. And what psycholinguistics does is not designed to enhance the clarity of legal writing, but these are uh, empirical studies that are conducted by specialists in psychology that study precisely these kinds of things. Why does a brain process a concrete noun more vividly than an abstract noun or vivid verbs in a way that that is different and, and enhances the ability of the reader to remember the verb as opposed to other less vivid verbs? Why does a short paragraphing enhance a reader's ability to remember the content of what they've read or topic sentences more memorable to readers? These are kinds of things that hundreds and hundreds of legal writing books have preached. But what I wanted to know is, is this really just intuitive or is there science to back it up? Are there lessons from individuals that have devoted their professional lives to conducting scientific studies on topic sentences, on paragraphing, on fonts, on spaces between subjects and verbs? And that was really, uh, I think, a terribly important area for me to look into to see if I can draw lessons that we can apply in the, in the, in the more mundane field of uh, our day-to-day legal writing. 
And honestly, there were a few aha moments for me in this book that in retrospect, you think to yourself, oh, yes, that makes sense. But you always point out sort of the difference between what a storyteller, like say a journalist or a novelist is trying to accomplish with their writing and their structure versus what a legal writer needs to be accomplishing. So for example, you say, when you are ordering which of your arguments to put forward first, you make your strongest argument first. That's not necessarily what, let's say, a creative writing teacher would tell you. They would say, well, build to that. But you make the point that, you know, but that's not how a judge is going to read your brief. A judge starts making up their mind, you know, while they read. And that to me was just such a great insight. Did you talk to many of your other, you know, judicial colleagues about what strikes them most about a really well-written brief or, or argument? I honestly did not do that in connection with this book. I have been a federal judge for a little over 20 years. And so, you know, I hate to say how boring our lives are at our lunchtime <laughs> and or going out for a cup of coffee or a glass of wine are, but but a lot of times we talk about these things. What is it, just as lawyers do, when I was in private practice, you know, we would share just in the course of talking about your your day-to-day -day, uh, work about, you know, what it is about particular briefs that is useful, is helpful, you know, what kinds of, what particular brief writers, you know, that we enjoy seeing, that we, we like it when we see a particular advocate's name on a brief. And I did this when, you know, when I was in private practice about talking, you know, uh, gossiping about uh, which judges uh, we, we thought uh, wrote uh, more influential or better, clearer opinions. So I really didn't do it in connection with, you know, the book itself, but certainly have had a lot of conversations about just that kind of thing. Was there anything that surprised you when you did your research for this book that sticks out in your memory? Well, one of the things that did stick out was just what you alluded to, Lee, and that is with psycholinguistics, is how many of the scientific studies in psycholinguistics really do substantiate the conventional wisdom that is articulated in really dozens or hundreds of legal writing books. One of the other things that surprised me is with oratory. One of the things that I set out to do is to look at Famous orators, Churchill, FDR, JFK, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and to try to see if some of their oratory would also illustrate, for good or evil, some of these precepts that we intuit in legal writing, whether the use of short sentences or long sentences is an attribute of some of these famous orators or things like the space between subjects and verbs and verbs and objects and topic sentences. Try to look at orator, oratory to see if we can draw lessons uh, for our uh, application in day-to-day -day legal writing. And one of the things that really struck me, Lee, is how many of just the very practical lessons that we see in so many wonderful legal writing books are things that we see applied in those orators that virtually all of us uh, would view as just 
among the greatest orators in history. It, 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 if we look at people like JFK or Martin Luther King, uh, FDR, Churchill, uh, we see so many uh, things that we are told in book after book on legal writing to do, and we see that illustrated in their uh, in their their written uh, speech in the, in the scripts uh, for their some of these very famous historic speeches, and that really struck me. Do you think a good piece of advice then would be for someone who might be struggling with a paragraph or looking at a draft to try reading it aloud? Absolutely. You know, some people, people are are different in this in terms of when we read, whether we read in a way that we hear it mentally. And some, some, ha- some people have more of a, of a tendency to do that than others. You know, for example, when you read something that is basically a tongue twister, you know, some people can read that and they don't have to do it aloud. They hear it mentally. But, but you know, whether you, you have that sort of, I won't say skill, but I would say tendency or not, if you read it aloud, I think that that is going to be how many, many readers will absorb that material. And so I think, Lee, the idea of reading your, your writing aloud is always to the good. I think it's a great, great practice. So getting back to the structure of the book, you make the point in here about organization being such a huge part of writing a brief or an opinion that has the impact you want it to. But when it came to organizing your book, how did you start out? What can a reader who picks up legal writing, the book, expect to see? One of the things that I I wanted to do, there was a number of practical points that I wanted to to make and to illustrate in the book, but I wanted to do it not in a way that 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 tracks necessarily the start of most briefs, the the, the middle point, and then go sequentially through briefs. I wanted to to go through the process of how you structure a persuasive argument. For example, one of the things that I try to discuss early in the book is creating context before detail. You know, one of the things that uh, I think many judges will say is a frustration is when you read an introduction, a fact section, and it is 10, 15 pages of background facts, and the judge doesn't yet know the context. What is the issue? What is the, or, or if they know the issue, what is the essential logical progression of the analysis? And until the judge knows that larger legal and factual context, a lot of the facts, a lot of the procedural uh, details are going to go in, for one of a better way to say it, in one ear and out the other. The judge has to know the context before d- the details, legal and factual. And that's one of the things that I addressed early on in the book. And then I try to explain that once you create context in a sort of a macro, large context, how do you do that on a smaller level throughout the book? And I try then to discuss other ways of of creating context for many introductions uh, to uh, introduce each analytical section, to use topic sentences as a way to create context for individual paragraphs, headings as a way to uh, track the legal 
the progression of the legal argument. And so that's what I, my process in trying to structure my own book was to structure the way that you structure persuasive advocacy or even for a judge to structure his or her opinions in a way will enhance the clarity of the legal writing. And that was really the large focus of my book, Lee, was trying to enhance the clarity of our legal writing, whether you're an advocate or a judge or writing for a senior partner, whatever you're doing, you're only going to be effective if the reader can understand what you have to say. And I think largely all of that turns on the degree of clarity in what you're communicating. And I think that goes by not not necessarily your individual style, but just some of these basic methods, creating context, using effective headings, using topic sentences effectively. And that's really how I tried to structure the book. One thing that I really appreciated is that throughout, you are not just creating fake cases and writing pretend paragraphs. You're taking from existing documents, whether they be opinions and briefs. And speaking of the headings, I loved that you pulled out to use as an example of how to create clear, impactful headings that have, you know, they're they're basically declarative sentences, was this case that David Boyes had regarding art that had been stolen by Nazis. And you include all the headings. And after I read this string of headings, I knew exactly what the case was about and exactly what his arguments were. And all I'd read were the headings. And, And so taking from life some of those examples of writing really helped me as a reader see what you were trying to get across. Did it take you a long time to come up with those examples or were a lot of those opinions or briefs already in the back of your head as, wow, that was some of my favorite legal writing? Well, no, uh, you know, when I started the book, I can't say that I at least remembered any of the of the examples, uh, you know, from my book. I remember some of the famous speeches in a more general way. But um, I I did read an awful, awful lot of opinions and briefs by so many people. But one of the things that I hope doesn't get communicated through using some of these very famous advocates like David Boyes is I don't I hope that no one sees that as as an implication that this is something that the that the extraordinary renowned advocates like David Boyes can do and that that's beyond the level of you know uh, of of uh, of everyday legal writers what I hope people can see is that these headings that David Boyes used I used some exa- examples that another former solicitor general Seth Waxman used that these are headings that any of us can do. They're effective, but they're not beyond the capability of any of us. If we just think that uh, on a very simple way, what is the logical progress of our argument? And if you think of it that way, what David Boyes did or Seth Waxman did, some of these advocates, is they just basically tracked the logical progress of the argument that really any of us can do if we just sit down, take a deep breath, back up and think, okay, what of all of the minutia, of all of the legal propositions, what is it that the reader has 
to follow? What is the syllogism, essentially, in most cases, of getting from A to Z? And it's remarkably simple, and it's remarkably important, but it's something that sometimes our problem is that we get too caught up in the minutia. We want to, the reader to know every devastatingly terrible thing about the opponent. We want to get in every single positive in, uh, important fact. And what that does sometimes, it impedes the reader's ability to understand the progress of the argument. When And I, and I don't purport to have an expertise in what how other judges go about making decisions, but I will say that for myself, when, when we hear, when we read the briefs, when we listen to oral arguments, oftentimes, you know, we're not going to go back and say, okay, well, we're, we're going to decide based on these three facts. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, the, the one party did this, the other party did that, et cetera. It's going to follow basically a logical progression. You know, we may just say it, in a in an inartful way in a few in a few minutes, but when we sit down in conference on, on cases, it will basically follow a legal uh, a, a progress a, a progressive pattern. We might say, you know, we view it the standard is this. We're applying de novo review. We think that the over I think that the overarching legal standard is X, and as I understand it, the undisputed evidence is Y, and therefore. I would come to the conclusion that we should affirm or to reverse. And if the writer, the advocate, sort of tracks in their way what the progression of their argument is, it's going to be that much easier for the judge to either adopt that pro- you know, that logical progression for his or her own way of, a, uh, of arriving at his or her decision, as opposed to trying to parcel out what is the logical progression without any benefit from the parties of just throwing out the kitchen sink. It's just not going to be terribly helpful to the judge in trying to, for him or her to make their decisions. That's really fascinating. I hadn't thought about that angle when it came to how someone structures their argument, being that when you're structuring your argument, you are, or could be, offering the judges who are hearing your case a roadmap for them to arrive at that decision. So that's that's very insightful. I, I love hearing that. If you could offer some advice to some young litigators who are just starting out, what are some of the very common beginner mistakes or beginner tendencies that you would caution them to stay away from or some resources that would help them as they get started? in their career as litigator? Lee, I would say a a few things. One is to read really good uh, legal writing books. And that's not a way of encouraging people to read my book. There is a wonderful, wonderful author of a number of legal writing books, Ross Guberman. And if, if I would say that high up on the list for a young lawyer, if I would say Read Point Made or Point Taken by Ross Guberman as well. And if you pick up any book by Ross Guberman, I think that they're wonderful. And I think all of us can learn a lot by by reading his books. Uh, there's a number of other really great legal writing books. I think Brian Gardner obviously has written a number of great uh, books. So 
I think all of those books really have quite a bit to offer. But also, what I would say is, you know, as a brand new lawyer, just as much as anybody else about what you will take out of, what you will benefit from reading briefs and arguments and judges' opinions. So I would say when you read um, the opposing party's brief or the judge's decision in a particular case, when you spend the next 30 or 40 years, I'm not saying necessarily to keep a journal of every good brief or opinion that you read, but think about what it is about that author, what about what it is about that paragraph that makes you think, this is hard to understand or this is easy to understand. I followed this easily. I, I, I had difficulty in following it. Think about why, you know, were they, were they sentences that, that lacked topic sentences? Were they, were they briefs that lacked meaningful headings? And just think about what it is that makes things easier for you to, uh, to understand. And then play a little psychoanalysis with yourself. Think about whether or not there's a, a correspondence between your ability to easily and immediately understand what sentences and paragraphs say and mean with the level in which you find they are persuasive. I believe that when you do that, you will almost always find that the easier it is to immediately and effortlessly understand what you're reading without rereading a, a clause, without rereading a paragraph, it's going to enhance the persuasive power of what you're reading. And so reading good briefs, reading terrible briefs, it's all to the good because you will learn what to avoid. You will learn what to emulate. Have other people read your, your obviously making sure that they don't, aren't going to create conflicts or have a conflict of interest. But if you're a brand new associate at a law firm, I would say get a buddy. Um, and even if they he or she can't bill the time, ask them to read it. Ask them if they had trouble understanding or had to reread a sentence or a paragraph to understand, you know, what it is that you were saying for little things like typos and make a deal that you'll do the same, you know, for that other lawyer, that other young lawyer, maybe buddy of yours, trying, understanding that the best Paul Clement, you know, I don't know this for a fact, I don't know Paul Clement or, you know, some of the wonderful advocates that we have, but I doubt that you read any of these briefs are their first uh, writing. You know, all of these, uh, you know, wonderful advocates and and justices, judges uh, who are just such brilliant writers, these are on the 12th, 24th, 36th edit of their briefs and their opinions. And so don't be bashful about editing and re-editing and re-editing because that is what makes good legal writing. And speaking to you as an editor, uh, one of the things I appreciated you pointing out, uh, I mean, you have an entire section in your book about topography and not just about, you know, well, Times New Roman is the best font or something like that, but pointing out that visually the way people absorb information can be helped or hindered by what it looks like, how our eyes can perceive it and our brain and translate it to our brains. You go into even letter spacing and kerning. I do think as an editor, 
a lot of the times what it takes to improve a block of writing is breaking it into smaller chunks, for example. Something can become much more readable when it, instead of being one giant paragraph, you realize, you know what, these can be three separate paragraphs and, and ease the reader on their way. So what made you decide to include this section in the book? Obviously, I think it's important as a, as a journalist and as an editor, but I was struck that you also found it important as a judge. Well, you know, one of the things that I neither I nor probably any author of legal writing uh, books uh, really delves into is the, is, the, is the underlying substance, the content, because obviously the legal writing is going to take a, a variety of different uh, shapes and substances, uh, a substance of, of the content. But one of the things that we all share is what is it that that enhances the ability of the reader to absorb the content as quickly and easily as possible? And one of the things that we know from some of the, and I'm no expert on typography, but some of the people that really do study this, like Matthew Butterick and others that we can learn from is, you know, when they, with all of the advances in typography, what is it about what some of the typographers recommend that we can emulate? And what I did try to do, and again, I'm not a, a psycholinguist myself, but what, what I really tried to do is to look at some of the scientific studies and see if those match up with some of the conventional wisdom of uh, of uh, recommendations for, uh, say, sans-serif uh, fonts and and that kind of thing, kerning, character spacing, and I think we're we're naive if if we ignore some of the value of making the way that we package the arguments in a way that that is appealing to the reader. You know, one of the things that you hit on, Lee, is with short paragraphs with white space. A lot, a lot of legal writing books say, you know, try to I- include a lot of white space, either by short paragraphs, by using bulleted lists, numerical lists. Don't shrink the margins to try to get as many words in it, you know, as you can if you have page limits. What I really tried to do is to look at some of the studies and see if those really support the idea that uh, that readers prefer to have shorter paragraphs, bulleted lists, numerical lists. And to the extent that there, there's not a lot of studies out there on these kinds of things, but to the extent that there are studies, they do generally support a lot of the conventional wisdom of some of the typography lessons that we what we see from authors like Matthew Butterick and others. You know, not necessarily that any single font is just the be all, but you know, some of the studies do you know support with with sans serif fonts, uh, with um, having shorter paragraphs and bulleted and numerical lists. And so I, I do think that that's, you know, part of the arsenal that we sh- should include when we think about how to write in a way that's appealing as, as it can be to the reader. And just so my listeners know, a little peek behind the curtain, when we were redesigning our magazine, we looked at these studies too. There are scientists who conduct things called eye track studies, where they literally will film people 
reading documents and see what do your eyes naturally do? Where do your eyes go to on a page? Obviously, in most legal writing, you're not going to be trying to figure out where the best place to put an ad is, but these are real studies that are that are done and that can give us real information when it comes to information design. I like that that was a part of what you considered when it came to legal writing. So if someone wanted to pick up this book, which is published through the ABA, the title again is Legal Writing, A Judge's Perspective on the Science and Rhetoric of the Written Word. How could they pick up a copy of your book? Well, probably the best way, Lee, is uh, to get on your website, the website for shop.americanbar.org, and uh, you'll see the listing for the book, as you mentioned, Legal Writing, a judge's perspective on the science and rhetoric of the written word. And uh, if you're an ABA member, you would be entitled to a 10% discount. If you're a a TIPS member, you get an additional 10% discount. But either through calling uh, the 800 number that appears on shop.americanbar.org or just purchasing through the website itself is probably the best way. And what's the early response been to the book? Have you uh, received any encouragements. So what's the response been like? Well, it, it's it's uh, sold a lot of books. Um, and uh, they. Uh, I just was told, I think, uh, yesterday that it's one of the top 10 sellers for um, ABA Press, I think, over the last year. And uh, so I'm just real, real pleased with the very kind reception that it's had. Well, thank you so much to Judge Backrack for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. And thanks also to you listeners. If you've read a book recently that you think should be shared to the larger Modern Law Library audience, you can send me your suggestions at books at abajournal.com. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.